this is like the main thing. I think everyone is like theoretically queer. Yeah, but yet yeah. in but yet, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Man, kissing any guys. This is Small Space Radio, a podcast about relationships and the environment. I'm Ariella. This episode is about being queer and being in a body. It's about our relationships and relationality. More than anything, it's about habits and friendships. Friends are family and so much more. They help us understand how to give and how to take. They're our support. They amplify our toxic behavior. They shape who we are. Part one is a conversation with Joseph Messer titled Don't Fall in Love with Straight Men. Part two features some spicy original nonfiction written by me. For Joseph, being queer is all about his relationships with others. I came into my own queerness in a very intellectual way, being alone a lot, reading queer literature, falling in love with my own body. We became friends, but he struck me as a little too high maintenance. I mean, I need to be alone a lot, and he loves to be surrounded by people. I was really curious to interview him to figure out what experiences affect how he sees the world, his own queerness, and his friendships. Joseph is from rural Mississippi, and the story that brought him from a small town in the South to the world of academia is, well, pretty crazy. Oh my god, so hi, how are you? Hey, I'm alright. As a kid, Joseph's parents weren't home a lot, and they would just sit him down in front of the TV. As a developing child who needs to be surrounded by people to grow, he was slowly going insane. But then, he discovered soccer. And finally, he wasn't alone. Like Midsummer Night Stream, men on a soccer team like running around naked. When he wasn't playing out in the field, he was being absorbed by books. Queer youth in the South, you know, you're not allowed if you're a male to like another male. So the only kind of place you can after those desires is like through, I think, like books or other symbolic substitutions. Things were good, but then Hurricane Katrina hit. I remember like playing a lot of Pokemon. My parents, I think, actually encouraged it. They were like, oh, just like, keep playing, like, don't look up. I was 10 at the time. Try to find these like strands of sameness in what otherwise was like a completely changed life. I think I have for a long time like held on to people and things too tightly. You know, because there's that child in you who's like thinking, you know, the world is suddenly going to be destroyed tomorrow. After the storm, he moved deeper into Mississippi. He quickly learned that it wasn't okay to be queer. But Joseph is great with people, blending it into any social dynamic. But there was always the other side of him, the queer kid who loved to read and imagine. I feel like you're definitely the type of person to like follow what you want to do in that moment. I definitely had the bad habit of not thinking pragmatically. So I think I think you're right. A little too idealistic, maybe. I feel like actually like learning and going to school was the act of rebellion. Desperate for a complete change of scenery, Joseph went to a tiny communist college in Deep Springs, California, a couple miles away from Death Valley, 
He thought the space would be just the antidote he needed. And with the help of art and self-reflection, he started to discover the bad habits he picked up from home. I have the terrible, terrible trait of falling into infatuation with mostly straight men. After two years of psychedelics, desert walks, and embodied communist living, Joseph didn't know what was next. His friends from Deep Springs were all going off to elite colleges in the Northeast, but he didn't feel like that was for him. They're like, oh, I'm going to work, you know, consulting and investment banking for a couple years, and then I'm really going to follow my passion. And then I'm like, it's just not going to happen. He worked odd jobs in California, became a yoga instructor. He lived in a Buddhist monastery after becoming briefly homeless. The monks didn't speak any English, but they taught him how to meditate all day. And through this reflection, he realized, shit, I need a place to live. I need a roof over my head. I need to go back to school. So he applied to liberal arts colleges, which brought him over to Williams. He was 21 years old. He was ready to be part of a team again. Being alone, overrated. And he was ready to go into hetero spaces and push it. Sports, I think, especially sports that ha that like involve a lot of like touching. There's like a lot of performances of male intimacy by men who identify as straight. Joseph joined the men's rugby team, a group infamous on campus for its somewhat decadent fraternity vibe. I, I love to like be in those spaces and kind of like, you know, even push it like a little more, try to like experiment around the edges of what's going on. Even though Joseph found that sense of closeness he was looking for, something about the team was a bit unsettling. Because they all have like straight friends who like maybe like make out with each other when they get drunk. Somehow that act isn't like interpreted necessarily as a non-heterosexual act. It's like, I'm so heterosexual I can make out with men. And it's like, what? Whoa, that is... <laughs> so confused. That is such a weird line. <laughs> it's not even a line, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's something. So like, did you find that the boundary could be pushed? Or did, what, did you get any fulfillment out of, like, occupying that space? No, I think you'd be, you'd be pretty dumb to think it was going to go anywhere. Like, don't fall in love with, <laughs> <laughs> with men who kiss other men but identify as straight. Yeah, this is the takeaway. <laughs> and then you got concussed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Rugby, definitely, yeah, definitely high percentage of concussion. When you're concussed, you can't watch TV. You can't read. You shouldn't go outside when it's bright out. You're supposed to sit in a dark room and do nothing. For Joseph, this is hell. When you're not physically able to like put yourself out and be around other people, I noticed that just like other people weren't that willing to like come to you. Even if they like, understand that you're suffering through an illness, that was really depressing. In all the isolation and feelings of abandonment and fear of change from childhood, we're back. You know, every new relationship uh, with anything is like a challenge and like an opportunity to kind of like recover. Yeah, or just like keep playing Pokemon. Yeah, I wish oh, I was still. Yeah, I wish I was still 
like my attention was still able to be completely sucked in by things like that. But like as someone who's so naturally inclined to being in my head about things, like it was almost so comforting to kind of like take like the intellectual route into queerness and then be like, oh hell yeah, like I'm queer. <laughs> but still like going out into the world and like living it is like the challenge for me. Our thoughts make habits, right? And that's those are kind of easier to disentangle. But the habits of like feeling and the habits of behaving in a body, I think are a lot harder to change. As I get to understand Joseph more, I realized he helped me and so many others kind of break out of practices of self-isolation. We live in a world that pushes us so hard to behave as individuals, but our identity is so fragile, so relational. We need to give and receive care, be present with others. It's literally how we survive. That's the biggest thing that I would like to see change, like the development of community. Taking as seriously how we care about each other as we take all kinds of academic events. How do you like to show people that you care about them? So I think I've been learning this year uh, from my friends who have been very, like, have been patient in, like, teaching me how they would like to be best cared about. But I think I like to, I like to write a lot. So I like to write letters and poems. Yeah. Um, I like to do on walks. Uh, I like to find out, I like to watch TV with people. I like to drink Moscato and then cry together. Queerness, in a lot of ways, is just being human. Being in a body that can nurture the difference in each other and the sameness. When I feel old limits closing in, I remind myself that growth is often nothing more than a change in the habitual. Little by little, we can heal. Part two. This is a love letter and a goodbye letter. You know when you spend so much time with somebody, you start to become like them. I'd walk across the snowy campus every night to just see her. We would smoke, listen to music, and talk about how people are trash. We were soulmates, but only when we were sad. I chose to shadow her radio show at the local college station. I knew her because she sat next to me in a geoscience class, but I had to keep it cool. I loved her body and her style. That was a cool blend of YouTube fashion blogger and independent DJ. I was overjoyed to see we had such similar taste in music. She loved the jazz artists I loved, and she told me all about her exes she got her tastes from. I made a podcast freshman fall, and I interviewed her for it. She didn't talk a lot or say anything that uncovered emotion. Even though she told me at the very beginning that she could be manipulative, I didn't see it as a red flag. 
I mean, she was letting me in. I was a freshman in college, somewhat desperate for validating friends. What could go wrong? We were also both obsessed with boys, so on the same wavelength. Conversation was effortless. I thought she was the coolest, most beautiful girl ever. When she let me get close to her, I felt chosen. Do I want to be her, or do I want to be with her? I was seeing guys at the time. I felt safe sleeping with men. I don't really develop feelings for them after an upbringing of being teased by boys for being shy, oily-faced, and covered in dark hair, crying all the time. It was material to bring back to her, to dissect with her, and also for her to think I'm valuable, desired. You can't read my journal without seeing her mentioned like a million times. She likes to figure people out. When I get annoyed with her, it's when her observations miss the mark. Sometimes she gets me wrong, but I can't put my finger on what she's getting wrong about me because I don't even know what it is. And our thoughts and habits merge. Our obsession with boys shifted to an obsession with getting high. I introduced her to weed, and she adopted a daily habit almost overnight. It was kind of suffocating. She picked up my worst habits, threw them back in my face, Our weekly meals turned into nightly sessions in her room, always her room. Her brightly colored posters with all sorts of colorful, sensual art. She magnified my indecisiveness, my desire to submit, my desire to accommodate. Things I already knew about myself but tried to play it off as being easygoing or chill. I remember crying to her after a night class about feeling like I didn't belong here in college. Just her presence alone felt so validating, even if she didn't share the same kind of things with me. In fact, she never really could open up to me. She always had a veil on, but down the road, I didn't care. We were soulmates, but only when we were sad. We would talk about other people, not exactly shit-talking, but our own brand of psychoanalysis that just strove to figure out how pathetic and sad people are. She'd always have some new lover, and we'd figure them out together. I didn't have anybody, just her, but I felt so safe, so comfortable, so loved. She's the kind of person that just loves to be taken care of, to absorb the personalities of who she surrounds herself by. But her fears, her anxieties, her bad habits and addictions also became mine. Together, we had no self-control. The world was built for our pleasure. I became obsessed with appearances, images, losing sense of reality. We were all that mattered. She was my world. We both thought we were secretly artists, trapped in the world of academia. I felt like I found somebody who understood me. She knew what it felt like to be an outsider, an artsy weirdo who struggled with feelings of isolation. But I felt too much, and she felt too little. We had conversations about mental health. She told me she had trouble being vulnerable, 
She told me she had depression. She told me she liked to manipulate people. But depression meant smart, empathetic. She understood people, how they worked. I didn't think she would use any of that against me. I was always a level below her. She was everything I wanted to be, but better. She knew about all my favorite musical artists and more I haven't heard of. She slept with more guys than me and was capable of having deep connections with them. She disciplined herself more about school and career. She had so many other close friends apart from me. I wanted to make it to the top. Whereas I was directionless, she was applying for it, stressing about finding an internship in tech. She got a really good one. I feel good for her, like she would finally get to be happy. I mean, I was also jealous, but I liked being jealous of her. January. You can escape how incredibly in the middle of nowhere we are, especially when it's so cold, by staying inside. After winter, you're numb to your entire self. Outside of her, I didn't really know who I was. The winter of 2017 reduced my mental health to its most vulnerable state. February 28th, Tuesday, 4.01 p.m. You're definitely depressed. Can't focus on anything. Just got out of class, spent the entire time looking at how fat my legs are. I don't know how long this will last. We were soulmates, but only when we were sad. I felt like I needed to come up for air. I had to go home. I had just gotten rejected from the last internship I applied for, so I just scrambled around the web for a summer job and got the first one I found at a fancy restaurant. I escaped on the earliest flight back to my hometown, Catalina Island in California. Home. My job kept my mind and body occupied. The cool women I worked with made up for the creepy men. On social media, my peers were out doing life-changing internships, having passionate summer flings, visiting like 30 countries, and I'm here serving drunk tourists, tolerating a kind of toxic work environment, and doing absolutely nothing to plan my future. The weirdest part of it all was that, for the first time in so long, I was happy. I'd spent so much time outside just hiking through the hills. I took a long break from smoking with my sister so she could pass a drug test. We'd sneak into a sauna in a gated community and just sweat. I went vegan, I did yoga all the time. I chopped a foot off my long, heavy hair. I made stupid beats on GarageBand. For the first time, I felt good in my body. I had to stop everything around me, lose my orientation. 
It was like a flip just switched on in my brain. August 21st, Monday, 3.48 p.m. Lessons from today. Forgive others for acting selfishly. Don't judge people. Remember, you are always beautiful, but when you feel beautiful, really appreciate those moments. My friend comes to visit me. She flew down from San Francisco took the boat over, just to see me. She arrives just as cool and distant as ever, and I start to feel anxiety. I wonder if she's as happy as I am. At night, she asks me what's wrong, and I try to open up to her. But it's hard to say. It's hard to say that I want you to need me. It's hard to say that I'm afraid you found everything you ever wanted as soon as I left the picture. On the last day of her visit, my friend told me about the reality of her life back in the corporate world, which was obviously not the utopia I was imagining. She would put herself in spaces she didn't want to be in just because they looked good. But once she was in them, it never was enough. I realized I never could have been enough for her. We both love to merge, become one. I took her to a secluded beach, trying to get her mind off the problems. She got high, even though I wasn't smoking. I could tell her mind was somewhere else. Looking back, I wonder if she loved me, if she was even capable of loving me. I think she just needed somebody to distract her from herself. After her visit, I questioned everything, if I had really changed, if I was really happy. Everything from winter was just crashing back down on me. She'll always be a part of me. She's every female friend I accidentally fell for before I discovered I was queer. All the confusion and longing. She's smoking weed all day and watching videos, doing nothing. She's the most beautiful when I feel the most ugly. When we were both going through dark times, we found each other. It felt so good to consume her love and have her consume me. We were each other's drug. At the end of winter term, right before my depression got bad, we went on a trip to New York together. We stayed in a little Airbnb in Brooklyn she paid for. She was always taking care of me financially. She was always generous with drugs and alcohol. We went thrifting together, and I blatantly attempted to copy her style. We went out to go see a concert and had a great time laughing at the performer's cocky persona. But around halfway through the show, she got blackout drunk 
and we left the group so I could take her back to the Airbnb in an Uber. She sat in the front seat with the driver and started asking him a bunch of really personal questions. What are your dreams? Are you happy driving Uber for a living? She started opening up about how she always wanted to be a musician, but felt pressured by her parents to pursue computer science. It's not too late to become a musician, the Uber driver told her. Both mortified and amused, I sat in the back seat. It was one of the first moments I saw how much she needed me to take care of her, how simple and childlike she was. It's one of the first moments I realized I didn't want to be her. I wanted to be with her, but I was trapped. For so long, my fear of not belonging drove me. I thought I could belong by being reflective, by becoming like somebody else, by being what somebody wanted me to be. But spending that summer away from her, away from college, forced me to rethink my relationship to the world. When you don't know who you are, it's easy to fall victim, but also to become complicit. I was habitually selfish. I never pushed anything or anyone around me to change because I loved the comfort of status, the status that was destroying both of us. My friend and I didn't have a dramatic breakup. Just like we came together, we fluidly drifted apart. I saw her attach herself to others, and I didn't feel jealous. I felt free. I was alone. I had a lot of work to do. This environment makes us really serious about schoolwork. I was not very close to many people in my high school. I think that's a good thing. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a win and a lose, I guess, because in the end, or I guess the main purpose of college is relationships, and not just romantic ones, but the ones that you make will probably last a lifetime. She graduated this year. I don't know what city she's in. I don't know if she's doing art. I don't know if she still smokes every day or if she's moved on to something else. If you're listening to this, hey, sorry for making you seem like the villain. You know I love being the victim, being self-righteous. I wonder what patterns I represent for you. I am all the insecure losers who latch onto your coolness for validation, but won't help you heal. It might even go on to make a radio memoir piece about how messed up you are. But of course that's not the full story. You taught me how to be confident. And that weed, yes, can be addictive, in that I am worth somebody's time and energy and love. Also, I love women. Phew. That felt good to say. <laughs> <laughs>